Scott, I've, uh, I've canceled our phone. What? I said I've canceled our phone. They're going to try to get us an unlisted line sometime next week. What do you mean they're going to try? Well, they're just going to try, honey. There are a lot of people waiting for unlisted lines. Didn't you tell them who you're married to? The incredible Scott Carey, the shrinking freak? Scott, don't. Use your influence, Louise. I'm a big man. I'm famous. Please don't. Those reporters out there. Why don't you tell them about it? Give them a new angle for their, for their papers. Or will I save it for my book? Yeah, that's what I'll do. A whole chapter devoted to telephones and one more joke for the world to laugh at. Scott, people know. They, they realize they're not laughing at you. They're not? No. Why not? It's funny, isn't it? But it is. See how funny I am? The child that looks like a man. Go on, laugh, Louise. Be like everyone else. It's all right. Well, why can't you look at me? Look at me! I saw it on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation, oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of information thrown in on the actors, stories on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing tale out of me. Now, fair be warned, we don't cover all aspects of plot, but we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. We're continuing January's theme, a slate of some really excellent movies all about shrinking that we call Let's Get Small. And this week, we are screening Jack Arnold's 1957 classic sci-fi film, The Incredible Shrinking Man. Join us! This week's movie is one that I saw long ago. Back in the day, catching it when I was at least in grade school, I think I was probably around seven or so, and this was another classic one. I saw it on a rainy Saturday afternoon, once again, due to the good folks at WPWR-TV Power 50. They were filling up a weekend with a bunch of amazing black and white gems like this one, and it really transformed my time spent coloring and playing with Legos into something that was unique and magical. Especially this time, because I got to watch a man slowly begin to shrink down and then have to survive in an alien world that was his own basement, fighting a giant spider for a piece of cake. No, that's not hyperbole. It's some um, spider versus man with cake in the balance. But hey, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I love The Incredible Shrinking Man. Don't get me wrong, it's not the greatest film ever. 
it's not like you're an incomplete person if you've gone this far into your existence without seeing it. But I'll tell you this, it's a fun movie, the likes of which are not made that often anymore. And it's a film that really does touch upon a lot of things and gets referenced to a lot in popular culture. And what's more, you have a film here that was an attempt to see if they can translate sort of an interesting notion that made for a fun pulp novel and throw it up onto the big screen and see if they could sort of enhance what was already there. And of course, that leads me to pointing out, once again, we are dealing with the writing genius that was Mr. Richard Matheson. Now, I've already gone on at great length on this show to talk about how much I love Mr. Richard Matheson. We did a good deal about him when we covered 1964's The Last Man on Earth, so I'm going to spare you another long lecture all about his life. But if you'd like to know about his life and times, by all means, please go back, check out episode 102, give it a spin. Definitely worth your time. So what you need to know right now is this movie this week was based on Matheson's 1956 novel of the same name. It's an adaptation that Matheson personally saw to. He sold the rights to Universal Pictures, and then he demanded as part of the sale agreement that he would be the one to at least pen the first official screenplay. So the story, at least as Matheson told it, would happen in flashback. The present our current main character, who is already small and battling with a gigantic spider, is looking back and kind of wondering how did he get here in the first place. Universal liked the screenplay that Matheson put forward, but they wanted to lose all of that flashback motif. Instead, they wanted a standard, linear narrative to try to tell the story of a man who finds himself mysteriously shrinking. So what do they do? They end up hiring another writer, Richard Allen Simmons. He comes in and he gives Matheson's script a rewrite, which, no lie, angers the author. I mean, could you blame him? Still, Universal was pleased with the end product, and they moved forward to Greenlight Production. When it came to hiring a director, they wanted to go with their golden boy, one Mr. Jack Arnold. Now, Arnold himself was currently looking for another project to knock out for the studio. He had already made them a ton of money with a string of 1950s sci-fi hits, such as It Came From Outer Space in 1953, the immortal classic, The Creature from the Black Lagoon in 1954, and the ever-so-fun cult film, Tarantula, in 1955. He's not a stranger to the genre, he brought a real can-do attitude towards filmmaking, and it was something that was much appreciated by a studio that was looking for his competency as well as his professionalism when it came to delivering a project on time. The studio brass had wanted actor Dan O'Harrelhe to star. It made sense. He was coming in hot off of the Academy Awards, where he received a nomination for his role as Robinson Crusoe. He would have been perfect to take on and embody the character that is Scott Carey. Now, he read the script, and he understood what he was getting into, and that's why the actor passed. He didn't want to be typecast. He wanted to play men who were different, and this was yet another role where he was playing someone who was abandoned and isolated. 
the studio was forced to go with their second choice, a young man by the name of Grant Williams. He was an up-and-coming actor who had done some minor theater and television work, but he had been in the Universal stable now for a few years, and he had already made a decent splash in two previous Jack Arnold movies, Red Sundown in 1955 and Outside of the Law in 1956. This would be his first opportunity to play as a bankable lead. Testing well with Williams, actress Randy Stewart was cast to play Mrs. Louise Carey, Scott's very put-upon wife. For the role of Charlie, Paul Langston, best known for his work in Peyton Place, was cast as Scott's take-charge brother. Rounding this whole group out, April Kent was cast as Clarice Bruce, a young carnival worker who takes pity on Carrie and tries to help him as he goes through his changes. Initially, this was budgeted for a cool $800,000, with filming to begin in May of 1956, and that would go on for a scheduled six weeks, in spite of a few setbacks. The shots were going to be difficult, but nothing impossible. Once again, trick photography was at play and was utilized to save the day, although certain practical challenges had to be addressed when you look at the script. See, in the novel, as they were common in most homes, Scott Carey is competing for control over the basement against a black widow spider. But in real life, aside from it being quite poisonous, black widows are rather small. They're hard to photograph, and they're even harder to wrangle. Arnold himself was familiar with working with spiders already from his previous 1955 creature feature, Tarantula. So he was able to get more out of using a different spider. He can control more of that animal's presence on the screen, guiding and directing the arachnids by way of puffs of air to get them to move about the set. Here's the downside, though. Those overhead lamps that they were using to light the basement, they were initially a little too hot. And over the course of filming, over 24 spiders were essentially cooked to death as they scampered about on screen. Filming the scenes with the cat would equally prove to be hard. You see, cats aren't known for their listening skills. To get the animal to approach and simulate an attack on the dollhouse, food had to be hidden within its walls just to attract the feline. Practical effects were put in as well. Giant props needed to be constructed to have Williams interact with, such as that giant mouse trap that he tries to get the cheese off of. That was like a human-sized mouse trap. Now, to create the stylized water drops, Arnold was forced to dig deep and to find some way to get the camera to catch those giant bursts of water that would be dropping down on, of course, a shrunken man. And he was really having a hard time doing it. You see, when you film water that's being poured in front of the camera, the drops, well, they look size appropriate. And that's something that they needed to fix. They needed because Carrie was so small to make the water look like it was this massive. A drop was a massive ball of water falling. How do you get that? Well, the director ended up recalling some misadventures from his youth. You see, Arnold would end up going on to tell this story decades later to Cinefantastique magazine. 
When he was a young man, he had gone into a drawer and he had found what he later learned were his father's condoms. But he did this with as a kid, not knowing any better. And frankly, he did what most little kids do when they find something. He assumed he understood their use, and so he filled them up with water, because clearly these were water balloons, and he spent an afternoon hurling these so-called water balloons at people. Arnold remembered the way the prophylactics would look when they burst. Due to their shape, they always had a very unique droplet pattern, sort of like an explosion of water that looked very large. This could be the way to simulate the large drops. So, as he's thinking about it, he turns to all the guys that are on the set, standing around getting ready to shoot this leaky water heater. And he asks the crew, Quick, do any of you guys have condoms on you? And after some initial embarrassment and a bit of hesitation, one of the crew members came forward and he passed some up. Arnold ended up taking the prophylactic and he filled it up with water, and then he did several types of tests where he would drop it in front of the camera for a film test. What does he get? Big, gigantic water bursts that occurred. And Arnold knew the shot was going to be saved. He quickly put in an order for the props master and ordered over a hundred condoms to be delivered onto set where he would use them to create the big, slow, steady time drips of water. Now here's the crazy part. Once filming had completely wrapped, Arnold was called into the production offices to speak with the finance guys to help explain all these charges they had. Did you really order a hundred condoms shipped to the set? And that led the director to deciding to have just a little bit of fun with the property guys. Well, honestly, it was such a tough picture, I had to give the cast a party. Honestly, one of the biggest problems that they had on the set was actor Williams would keep getting injured doing stunts for the film. He was scratched, cut, burned, and had horrible, horrible injuries done to his eyes, all because he was almost blinded by looking into the arc lights that they were using to light the set. When all was said and done, if you include the delays in filming that were brought on by Williams' injuries, production would end up going over schedule and over budget, costing another $25,000 in the process. Still, Universal felt that they had something here, and although they were getting some pushback from Matheson and to a lesser extent director Arnold, they were pleased. The ending from the book was written into one of the early drafts, but the revised Simmons script had given the movie an alternate and what was considered a very happy ending. One where the main character suddenly returns to normal size because we need a happy ending and all's well that ends well. Which was exactly the opposite of what author Matheson had initially penned and what director Arnold had initially shot. Now, Arnold was aware that there were two versions of the film, but he had stuck with filming the original. He didn't want the happy ending. Universal tried to sway them, tried to get them to see, well, let's see what the audience likes, and held test screenings for the film. But they were surprised. While audience members did wish the ending could have been a bit happier, a number of the comments that were left with the happy ending was, he shouldn't have regrown. He shouldn't have done that. 
and that allowed Arnold and Matheson to keep the ending as they initially had intended. But, folks, I gotta say, you've heard enough of my yakking on this. How's about I shut up and we get onto that trailer? What do you say? Orson Welles speaking. I just saw the impossible happen before my astounded eyes. I saw a man grow smaller and smaller day by day. I saw the loneliest and most frightened creature on earth living a nightmare in a world of giants. The incredible shrinking man. The incredible shrinking man. While out on vacation with his lovely wife Louise, as played by Randy Stewart, advertising man Robert Scott Carey, as played by Grant Williams, experiences a strange phenomenon, being exposed to a cloud of mist that envelops him and then passes on by. Nothing is really thought of it at first, that is, until six months pass by, and a confused Scott begins to notice strange things seem to be happening to him. His clothes don't fit right. He seems to be losing weight. With some urging from his wife, he goes to visit the family doctor a few times. And finally, it's the doctor who gives him some rather disturbing news. Well, it's the last of them, Mr. Carey. This has been a long week, Dr. Bramson. I must have worn out your machine. I needed two full sets of pictures spaced several days apart. I, I had to compare them before I, before I could be sure. Sure of what, Doctor? What is it? Relax, Doctor. You can't tell me anything I haven't imagined. You are getting smaller. I, I don't profess to understand it, Mr. Carey. There's no medical precedent for what's happening to you. I, I simply know that you're getting smaller. The x-rays prove it beyond any doubt. But that's impossible. That's what we've always believed, Mrs. Carey. I'm going to send you to the California Medical Research Institute. If there is an explanation for your phenomenon, why, well, they'll find it. All of this seems to be because he had that weird exposure. First to that strange radioactive mist, and then later, when he interacted with some seemingly harmless pesticides, well... That seems to have jump-started a change within his own body's molecular structure, and that's causing Mr. Carey to quixotically shrink down. There is no known cure for what Carey is going through, and they're going to have to figure out how he's going to continue to function. A modern medical miracle. Scott, at first, tries to get Louise to see that she is going to be going through hell if she stays with him, and he freely gives his wife the option to leave him, especially since he's most likely going to die from this. But Louise tells him she, of course, will stay with him. She loves him. But as if to foreshadow their doomed relationship, Scott ends up shrinking to the point that his wedding ring is no longer able to even stay on his hand. Scott, in turn, becomes a national oddity. 
Newspapers and television crews stake out his house, hoping to spot the shrinking man, hounding Louise for interviews and pictures. Scott has shrunk down now to the size of a child, much to his overall embarrassment. He does attempt a procedure that will hopefully halt the process of his shrinking, but that's at best all he can hope for. He's never going to attain his regular size again. Making things worse, his newfound height makes his wife and his brother address him as if he were a child. And when he wants his wife to take him seriously, or listen to him, or just hear how he feels, she humorously writes him off, offering him instead some cake and ice cream as a method to placate him. Unable to find physical solace with her, he ends up running off for a brief time and joins up with members of a traveling carnival, where people his size are treated as oddities, but at least they have community. And it's there that he develops a relationship with a woman named Clarice, as played by April Kent, who herself is a dwarf performer at the sideshow. How do you live with it, Miss Bruce? What do you do? I was born a midget. It's the way I grew up. I know what's happened to you, and, well, that's different. Different. That's another way of saying alone, isn't it? Oh, but you're not alone now. Still, it must be hard to forget the way things were. Yeah, I'd like to bring it out of my mind. Maybe the best way to begin is to start thinking about the future. A future? In a world of giants? I've lived with them all my life. Oh, Scott, for people like you and me, the world can be a wonderful place. Skies as blue as it is for the giants. The friends are as warm. I wish I could believe that. You've got to believe that. Don't you? Yeah. Give me time, Clarice. I'll learn. I'll be late for my show. Oh, look. Can I see you again? If you like. I would. You know, Scott? You're taller than I am. While Clarice is briefly able to pull Scott out of his depression and inspire him to keep track and tell his story, his dalliance with her ends abruptly, when Carrie is horrified to learn that the antidote is not working and that he is yet again shrinking down to a smaller size. Desperate, Carrie goes back home to Louise, a broken and scared man. Louise, for her part, still, in some ways, loves her husband, but is forced to take care of him, setting him up in a dollhouse within their home, and forced to deal with Carrie's tantrums and accusations. One particularly rough afternoon, Louise leaves the house to run some errands, and she accidentally lets Butch, the family cat, into the same room that Scott's in. Attacking first the dollhouse, Butch claws at the little man, bloodying his clothes and forcing him to retreat to hide inside the basement door. He's ultimately knocked into a pile of insulation, trapping him in the basement and leaving him unable to climb back up. Luis returns home and finds the cat in Scott's room, also finding his bloody clothes. She assumes that Butch has eaten her husband, forcing her to call her brother-in-law, Charlie, as played by Paul Langton, and decide how she will now go on with her life, determining that she's going to sell the home and move out. Scott, 
for his part, can't even make himself heard to either his wife or his brother, and he is forced instead to adapt to the nightmare that he now finds himself in, which is the basement. He gets some new clothes, and he outfits himself with a straight pin that he uses as a sword, and a bent nail that he uses as a grappling hook. He then goes about attempting to survive in this new world, living off of water from a leaky water heater, eating cheese, and later abandoned cake in order to survive. He also learns he's not alone, forced now to confront a new enemy, a giant spider, who is his competitor and the top predator in this new world. I still had my weapons. With these bits of metal, I was a man again. If I was to die, it would not be as a helpless insect in the jaws of the spider monster. A strange calm possessed me. I thought more clearly than I had ever thought before. As if my mind were bathed in a brilliant light. I recognized that part of my illness was rooted in hunger. And I remembered the food on the shelf. The cake threaded with spider web. I no longer felt hatred for the spider. Like myself, it struggled blindly for the means to live. If I was to fight it, if I was to win the food, then it must be now while strength remained, while I was still of sufficient size to scale the wall. It was not decision that drove me to the crate, but reflex, as instinctive as the spider's. After the water heater bursts and creates a flood that nearly kills him, Scott ends up having a showdown with the spider, failing at first to outsmart it with a well-laid trap that would weigh the insect down and kill him. Instead, Scott is forced to engage the animal in a one-on-one -on -one battle, where he eventually falls under the beast and is only able to survive by stabbing upward, hitting it in the abdomen with his pin, killing it, and becoming the sole master of this new world. Carrie falls asleep in exhaustion, and when he wakes, he realizes that he is now even smaller, and he can actually just walk through the screen filter on the basement window, being able now to head out into the bright, massive new world that is his own yard. Carrie is no longer afraid, though, having rationalized to himself that he's going to go forth and conquer, just as mankind has conquered all of the spheres of existence before him, rationalizing that to himself, no matter how small he will eventually become, he will still matter, even in this existence, because even at the microscopic level, God will know that he exists. Credits roll. Honestly, where do we even begin here? Well, first and foremost, let's call out the wonderfulness here. Grant Williams is fantastic, especially when you consider by minute 35, we're essentially with him just surviving in that basement. 
that forces him to do all kinds of emoting. He's got to be super physical just to show off how strange his predicament is here in the household cellar, transformed instead into this alien world that's full of death and danger. His sorrowful expression, his haunted eyes, that keys us in to this larger theme of alienation and isolation, of being small enough to just comfortably fit inside of a matchbox. Here he was, this man's man, at least in the modern sense of the word, for the time. He had the house, he had the job, he had the car, he had the wife. He was doing, air quotes, okay. And now, here he is, trapped in his own home, struggling with his literal existence, trying to figure out how not to get himself killed as he attempts to steal a crumb of cheese, ironically from a mousetrap that he himself set, rather than starve to death, in a role that could have very easily become hammy in the hands of a lesser actor, Williams is all in here, both being sympathetic and still maintaining a very heroic air throughout. Now, to give equal credit here, and somewhat unfairly, R Randy Stewart does a great job. Uh, it is not her fault she's stuck with playing this very rather unenviable role of being Louise, the supportive wife, who, even when she's doing everything that is asked of her, she still gets yelled at and is still the target of her husband's misplaced rage. None of that's her fault, and it's a little bit odd. The story, even though no one says it, it seems like there's this air of her being blamed for everything that goes wrong in this film. It sort of speaks just to the time the film was written and made, as well as the country's own social mores when it came to what was actually expected from men and women in society. Now, I'll say this, over the years, many a scholarly article has been penned and a lot of ink has been spilled on this film, some findings being more interesting than others. Author Ruthaline Connolly writes about this picture that what's interesting is it brings a chance to see a sort of unfamiliarity in the familiar. All of these unreliable things and ultimately the horror that comes from these everyday objects being used in such unique and scary ways. The smaller Scott gets, the more and more hostile all of the world around him becomes. Objects get too heavy, the house cat goes from being a pet to a predator, and his wife, his partner in life, becomes first his caretaker and then somewhat becomes his captor as he gets too small to even cope with his situation. By the time his shrinking has stopped, at least temporarily, and he gets that moment of normalcy, he does find solace in someone else who's not his wife. He gets to talk to Clarice. He gets to talk to the other circus performers. But even that moment of normal gets taken away too soon, leaving him alone and frustrated yet again. Now, in addition to what I just said, there's also been a ton of ink spilled, both on the novel and on the film itself, when it comes to the general transition that Carrie makes from being this full-on, proud husband, breadwinner, red-blooded, 50s American man, into this infantilized, neutered, child role, 
where he's robbed of his masculinity by this mysterious shrinking. And while, yeah, I agree, you can make all kinds of stuff out of that, I'm not going to dig too far into this because I'm not Freud. Scott Carey as a character has always been questioning his value and his own masculinity. We get hints of that in the film. In Matheson's original novel, Scott is stupendously insecure about his ability to be a good breadwinner and provider for his family, and he honestly looks to his dependence on being in advertising with his brother as just one more way that he's flawed in his duties. And the movie kind of doubles down on this. Especially in the opening, Louise, even though it's said in a really light and flirtatious way, this whole conversation that launches the film, it starts out with her pointing out that your brother provided this boat, you didn't provide this boat. And then she further rejects her husband's request that she fetch him a beer, telling him, hey, I'm on vacation too, you can get your own. This is the way to spend a vacation. Mm-hmm. I'm thirsty. Mm, that sun feels good. I'm thirsty. Interesting. A cold bottle of beer tastes fine. Why'd you get it? Me? Mm-hmm. I'm on vacation. All week. Well, so am I, my friend. Hmm. Hmm. Louise? Hmm? I think we should get married. Oh, we've been married for six years. Really? Mm-hmm. Seems like six minutes. I am not going to get you that beer. Now, I provide the boat, you provide the beer. Oh, your brother provided the boat. Okay, I'll make a deal with you. What? You get the beer, I'll get the dinner. How's that? Okay, you got yourself a deal. To the galley, wench. Fetch me a flagon of beer. Oh, I'm sorry, Captain, but we're all out of flagons this trip. It'll have to be a can of beer. Out of flagons? Mm. In the name of heavens, woman, how are we to make the Philippines? We're not going to the Philippines, sir. We're going home at the end of the week. Mutiny. <laughs> make them cold. Like ice. Now, on one level, especially in our modern sense, yeah, by all means, your wife isn't your servant. Get your own damn beer. But... It's interesting, this also serves to subtly foreshadow the sort of independent streak that Louise supposedly has, as well as the very start to the emasculation that Carrie is going to receive as the story rolls on. Unlike the novel, the film spares us, at least due to the standards of the day, the scenes of Scott being rejected romantically by his wife, after he gets down to the size of a child. The very 50s way of feeling this rejection is her subtly taking Butch the cat to bed rather than her husband, leaving Scott behind sitting on the couch to cool his heels in the dollhouse while the shrinking continues. Look, all one needs to take away from this is the smaller that Carrie gets, the less and less both his wife and his brother seem to recognize him as an equal or as a full person. Now, the flip side, we are, at least according to some, to take away from all of this is each time that he changes size, when Carrie gets smaller, he at least gains new perspective, and thus he continually gets smarter, technically experiencing two very different transformations, 
his consciousness expands as his physical form diminishes. The basement, here in this story, it becomes a character in of itself. It's a post-apocalyptic hellscape, a place where Carrie must forage for food, water, clothes, shelter, and he has a competition there for the resources, a natural predator of the home, a common spider, which is now rendered massive compared to Carrie's own size. And it's through this battle for resources and control that Carrie is able to win back his own symbolic manhood. I mean, for my money, there's no better bit of insanity here than when Scott's brother Charlie has to first give a press conference and then take in the news reports, where it's explained that his brother was eaten by the family cat. That makes for a really strange time when it comes to this film. To deafening applause when he announced that, if elected, he will do everything in his power to reduce taxes. From Los Angeles today, a tragic story. The passing of Robert Scott Carey. The report of the death of the so-called shrinking man comes from his brother. Carey's death was the result of an attack by a common house cat a former pet in the Carey home. Carey was the victim of the most fantastic ailment in the annals of medicine. Thus ends the life of a man whose courage and will to survive lasted until the very end. A man whose fantastic story was known to virtually every man, woman, and child in the civilized Mr. world. Mr. Carey. Now let me get to something that's kind of minuscule but has always bothered me. Can we bring up the cake? Look, I'm not saying that I have not multitasked in my own life. Bringing a bit of food or perhaps even a dessert with me while I'm attempting to be productive doing something else. So it's because of that that I can actually totally buy the fact that Louise was noshing on some cake down there in the basement when she was doing her ironing. That leads me to ask then the following piece. How did the hunk of cake wind up plateless, just on the dirty countertop that is the basement ledge? There's no plate, there's no eating implements. It's as if Louise was ironing with one hand and then fisting cake into her face with the other. Some sort of savage gorging that left her so sated, so full, that she then absentmindedly decided to just throw the food that was in her hand down on the dirty shelf next to her and just abandon it there. Her brain clearly clouded over in a sugary fog. But why? Who does that? Why would you do that? It makes no sense to me. Again, I understand leaving the cake. He, he gets the call from the doctor. He runs to the top of the stairs, says they need to go. The cake is clearly shown in the background. I understand. But why is she having it there without any sort of eating implementation or even plate to have it on? It is just food that is being rolled in dirt before she puts it to her head. And that is something I can't abide. That's lazy filmmaking right there, people. All right, I'll get to something else. What do you make of the ending? I mean, 
Honestly, you can look at it from several angles. Is it a modern take on paranoia? What was once familiar and comfortable, the home, your wife, your neighbors, it's now threatening, enlarging. I mean, yeah, sure, you could take it that way. The film itself can be taken to be seen as a triumph. Carrie has decided to keep going on. He's accepted his fate, but he's going to continue to adventure as long as he can, moving down to the subatomic size and exploring the mysteries of the infinite, leaving his own unique mark wherever he goes. That is uplifting. The ending, though, can also be seen as a real downer. Your family thinks you're dead. You've just spent the last half hour of this movie fighting a spider for some cake. This is how you're going to die, and odds are it's going to be alone, and most likely in some rather horrible fashion. Not really uplifting. I can hear you out there. Chris, how was this film received? Well, The Incredible Shrinking Man had a staggered release. First, it came out in the spring of 1957, opening in New York in February, and then having a premiere as well in March in L.A., before it had a full commercial release that would come at the end of April of 1957. Critically, it was a mixed bag. There were those who loved it, who gave it high praise, such as Philip K. Schur of the LA Times, who saw the genius in its storytelling and who noted that this is both the horror and humor that is to be enjoyed by those who understand. Others were a little more even-handed. Variety did praise the technical achievements of the film on the big screen, but noted that the story itself was not up to snuff for entertainment side of things, saying that it was inclined to slow down on occasion, resulting in a flagging interest here and there. Okay, that seems fair. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, that great old damn of the art scene, was outright hostile in mocking the film for being tiresome and claiming that it was loaded with science fiction cliches. Truthfully though, in the end, it wouldn't much matter what critics said, because the audiences actually came out in droves to see what the fuss was about, and the film would go on to make over $1.4 million at the box office, which made it a modest success for the studio, and would allow it to serve to spawn numerous imitators in the coming years, building all off of the concept of size change. We would also get to see that same thing come about with that year's The Amazing Colossal Man, its sequel in 1958, The War of the Colossal Beasts, and then the cult classic The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, all inspired by this film. Now, Matheson himself had really enjoyed this story, and he wanted to tell more of it. And so he decided to pen a sequel that would never, at least as of this podcast date, get filmed. The Fantastic Little Girl was the would-be sequel that would have told the story from Louise's point of view, as she herself discovers, after her husband has shrunk down, that she is starting to face the effects of shrinking as well. 
and that forces her to try to find her wayward husband, Scott, joining him on adventures in the subatomic world. There's creatures, there's crazy science, it's a lot of fun. Essentially, Matheson had penned Ant-Man, Quantumanium, long before such a thing would even come into existence. Still, the film was never going to get made during Matheson's lifetime, and unrealized even as the author passed in 2013, it stays right where it is today, in development hell. Now, I will say this, the film did inspire another cult classic to be made. In 1981, director Joel Schumacher made the sci-fi comedy The Incredible Shrinking Woman, which stars Lily Tomlin, Charles Grodin, Ned Beatty. It's on the same level as the original film. No, no, it's not. But it's a lot of fun, and in my humble opinion, it's well worth the view. You get to see some prime Lily Tomlin playing multiple characters, Charles Grodin's great in anything, and Ned Beatty always adds a level of gravitas wherever he goes. Seriously, go see it. It's a fun movie. But clearly, this was the inspiration for it. And over the years, The Incredible Shrinking Man has held a cult status. It's been referenced numerous times, and it's been kicked around just as a concept in general. Although, to date, no one has come close to actually remaking the film, even though people have wanted to. Multiple attempts have been tried to get it off of ground, but it really just seems to stall out. As of 2009, the film was selected to be preserved by the U.S. National Film Registry for the Library of Congress, and it would add further to its gravitas and a place in the cultural zeitgeist by being recognized as such. Look, I'll tell you to you straight. I can't tell you this movie's going to change your life. But it's one of those things that when you start sitting down to watch it, it is a lot of fun. I don't know what those other people were watching, but for my money, this movie barrels along like a freight train. He is fully starting to be almost shrunken down completely by the time you're a half hour into this movie. And still, after all of these years, it still holds on and holds up as a unique concept. Which is something I think more folks would enjoy if they would just give it a chance to sit down and watch it. But I think they're turned off by the black and whiteness of it all and the special effects. Which, I will say, while dated again, hold up very well for a film that was made in 1957. At the end of the day, you are watching a man try to survive and thrive in a new world, even though that new world is just his basement and the powers that be are literally a leaky water heater, a grate that he doesn't want to drown in, and a very aggressive house spider. And when you take all that into account, the Incredible Shrinking Man becomes an adventure that I think everybody can get behind, and what's more, more people should. The version of The Incredible Shrinking Man screened here at the LSCE was the 2016 version on DVD, part of the box set of The Classics, Sci-Fi Ultimate Collection Volume 1. 
which for the going price of $12.99 gives you, the viewer, an amazing set of films, which includes Tarantula, The Mole People, The Monolith Monsters, and Monster on Campus, and of course, The Incredible Shrinking Man. And while it doesn't come with a bunch of bells and whistles, you get a lot of great cult films for that price, and that makes it nothing to sneeze at. Now, there are also multiple nice versions of this film that have come forth as well. In 2017, an amazing special edition Blu-ray was released by the good folks at Arrow Video. They've put together a marvelous version of this film that includes a full-length commentary from film historian Tim Lucas, as well as an extended documentary about director Jack Arnold, and interviews from Richard Christian Matheson, all talking about his father Richard, and writing on the novel and the film, as well as including Super 8 video versions of the film, the original theatrical trailers, teaser trailers, and new artwork. All of that could be yours for the low price of $25.99 at Amazon.com, and well worth it if you ask me. But wait, perhaps you're going to tell me that you're a snob, and that you like to get your films from even loftier brands. Do you want to get the cream of the crop? Well, Criterion has gone and released their own amazing version of the film back in October of 2021. And for just $19.99, you can have the release of The Incredible Shrinking Man on Blu-ray. And you could load it up with commentary from historian Tom Weaver, music analyzed by expert David Schechter, special effects featurettes, commentary from filmmaker Joe Dante, as well as comedian Dana Gould, the making of Jack Armstrong documentary, the same Christian Matheson interview, plus a lost 1983 interview with director Jack Arnold himself, as well as music from the film. Trailers and teasers that are provided and narrated by one Orson Welles, a guest essay, and all of that adds up to a steal, if you ask me, when you get to that $19 price tag. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here for telling you where you should purchase your film from at the LSCE. We just feel in this day and age, it's ever so important to continue to support physical media and to show these fine studios who own the rights that we are indeed still interested in getting their content. And honestly, at the end of the day, isn't that your goal? You just want to get more of that content that you know and love. Besides, I'll say it, this movie, it's so iconic. It's so interesting. It's so fun. You would be crazy not to get yourself a copy. So, with that said, what are you waiting for? Get out there. Secure yourself a version of The Incredible Shrinking Man today. You will thank me. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Have you updated your Spotify? I know they're letting you review podcasts. 
please feel free to do it right there. Give us a review. We would appreciate it. Have you left us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout-out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please swing by and check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm proud to announce we are on Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to do that to whatever list we're a part of to help give us a boost in the old rankings. The more reviews, the increased likes, all of those affect the marvelous algorithms, and that makes us more searchable. And then we can share a bunch of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? (laughs) Of course you do! If you have any questions for us, any comments, any movies you want us to cover, things you thought I got wrong, we want to hear from you. Please, send us an email or an audio clip. Send it to LindenStreetCinemaExperience at gmail.com. Do you love social media? Hey, we use it here. Follow us on Twitter at LSCEP, or you can find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. If you would like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.